Welcome back to Indian Genius. We now continue our very interesting conversation with Dr. James Beecham and carry on where we left off in episode one. If we were able to measure it in more than three dimensions of space, so you and I, yeah, you and I only exist in three dimensions of space, but maybe the extra gravity that we're missing is leaking into spatial dimensions that are invisible to you and I could be something that's so small and curled up and it's at every point in space all the time. You imagine like a, you know, a tightrope walker, mm. right? If, uh, if he takes a, a rope and puts it across two buildings of the street underneath, right? And as the tightrope walker from a distance, you see her walking across the street and she only has one direction to go in, one dimension, right? Forward or backward. Mm. And she can't go side to side, otherwise she could fall. So she has one dimension. However, then if you zoom in to the rope itself, and what if you're an ant, a tiny ant on the rope? The ant, in fact, has one extra dimension. He can go forward and backward, but he can also go around the rope. Mm. So there's this extra dimension of space that was invisible to you looking from a far distance. So maybe every single point in space, there's an extra loop, uh, you know, spatial dimension, and maybe that's where the extra gravity is, is leaking into. And, and possibly we could find an evidence of this by creating one of these little kind of like, uh, you know, hyperdimensional graviton things or one of these mini black holes that would allow us to, you know, to, to, uh, to, to test this hypothesis. Mm-hmm. We don't see any evidence of this so far, but we're still looking for this type of thing. I think that, uh, would, that actually describes uh, the initial requirements for the string theory and Kaluza Klein when they spoke about 11 dimensions uh, for gravity to be taken into account. But I think before we get there, I just want to come back to, so like you spoke about special relativity, Einstein actually brought uh, gravity into the picture. Uh, I think Schrodinger, when he spoke about the uh, particle and uh, duality, particle and wave functions, that was a very interesting part uh, of us coming to understand quantum physics, so what made it so interesting as well, right? Yeah, so the, the notion of the wave-particle duality is uh, is a particularly uh, important version of, <laughs> I think it was Feynman who once said that any physicist worth her salt has about six different ways to describe the exact same phenomenon, right? right? <laughs> he, he also said if anybody understands string theory, uh, or he says nobody understands string theory. Yeah, yeah, he said nobody understands string, string theory, but then I, th- I don't remember if it was Feynman or somebody else, but another one of the famous quotes about quantum mechanics, right, is that uh, something about how uh, anybody that says that they understand quantum mechanics hasn't thought about it for long enough. <laughs> but with, 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 uh, it, it brings in the probabilities into our lives if it's at the microscopic level. But then that also does mean, right, it brings in the thought of the... Uh, whether it's free will versus a deterministic universe, because at some level, if you have a choice, or if every electron has a choice, till it actually decides, or till somebody observes it, does that doesn't does that not fit in with uh, everyone making a decision, and then that decision becoming realistically uh, manifesting in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a deep question, right? I mean, what do you think? Do you think that uh, that our universe is uh, can be successfully thought of as, uh, you know, do we have free will in this case? I think the, uh, when it comes down to free will, I think we do, but I would say limited free will. And when I say limited free will, I mean that there are options for everybody. But I still would have to connect it to the multiverse because whichever decision you make, you're going to keep branching out. And once you branch out into another universe, the previous one that you left, you're still going to be left with choices there. So it's like taking taking one choice and moving on, but 
that doesn't mean that the other 99 for example have are not there anymore it's still there and so mm. i think in every level uh, people have moved on with a choice that they've made uh, i don't know if i'm making sense to you yeah i mean it, it, i think that's a it's a good you know sort of analogy for the way that uh, that humans operate for sure i mean at the end of the day you know it it's one of these things that's uh, it, it's it's open to interpretation and it's it's kind of less it kind of more or less um, uh, unverifiable, right? I mean, we can we can have these conversations, but there's really no experiment for me to you know that I that I can design right now mm. to determine whether or not you know you, humans themselves have free will. <laughs> what do you I think mean, from from what you yeah you have access to uh, much more data than most of us, and from what all you can see going on around you? What is your take on free will? I think that humans definitely do have free will, but it has to do with them. It's you know it's a matter of scale to me. It's 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 a matter of how you know different concepts are uh, valid in certain regimes and they're not valid in other regimes. And we know this is the case in physics, right? I mean, you know, if 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 I you know, for example, me walking around the world right now just through physical space, I don't actually have to care about quantum mechanics at all. It doesn't matter if quantum mechanics is real or not. It really doesn't, you know, to me walking around, if you know, in an agrarian society, you know, way before anybody had telescopes or electromagnets or anything, I could, you know, have, I could get, uh, you know, some some uh, livestock and I could, you know, I, I could let them graze on the land and I could, you know, I could marvel at the, you know, the beauty of, it, of nature and the mountains and I could just exist right there. I never, never would have to care about whether quantum mechanics exists. And so in that case... You know, in that sense, these are the things that are that are valid to us. Are, are you know, in, in humans or organizing themselves in society, those things are really valid, right? It actually does matter how I treat you know my other human beings. It matters whether I'm kind or I'm evil or I'm you know mean or I'm I'm charitable. You know, these sorts of things, I do have a choice to to make these happen. And whether or not I'm able to point toward you know fa- the fact that deep down inside, deep down at every single one of our particle levels, you know, there is some kind of uh, constant you know unceasing level of uh, you know, quantum determinism going on and branching off into multiple universes or whatever you want to call it, that's totally irrelevant to me. <laughs> mm. So, you know, the, 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 the reason why I always get a little bit um, skeptical when people start talking about, you know, quantum mechanics and free will is that I often think that, I, you know, I always have to wonder is like, why are they bothering to have this conversation? You know, are they trying to, are they trying to find some source for some of their bad things that they've done in their life? You know, it's mm. like, oh, well, quantum mechanics made me do it. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, well, I didn't really have a choice because, you know, this is the, this is the type of universe that, you know, that, that, that I happen to find myself into. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, this kind of, the, uh, this, this led me to do what I'm going to, you know, what I was doing. Right. I mean, I, for, for me, for me, it's, it's less interesting than, you know, uh, then you know how how we as humans can take these lessons, take these understandings of nature at the smallest possible scales, and use these to construct a better world. You know, I, and I use this as I, I like to think of you know quantum mechanics as being so, you know I like to point it out. It's like one of the things that a lot of people are thinking right right now is the future of computing. Right, if we were able, once we get to quantum computers, right, will we be able to more or less simulate things at such high high scales as you know? And eventually, once quantum computers get uh, better and better, and uh, you, we can scale them up, could we, in principle, you know, for example, simulate the human brain? Mm. You know, and if if we can simulate the human brain, could we simulate human consciousness, mm. which I think is very ill-defined? Mm. You know, in that case, could we then find the source of how humans make their their choices? You know, and uh, could we could we could we predict the way that humans are going to act with complete accuracy. Mm. And I think that at the end of the day, we probably cannot, right? I mean, even though, because again, down at the, mo- down, down at the moment of individual, you know, particles constantly making these, these uh, 
constantly branching off into you know into uh, into different realized universes, realized realities. Um, that's still going to be basically you know we can we can we can calculate one particular uh, version of reality ours, but in our reality in our universe here, if we're able to you know if we're able to accurately uh, uh, do some kind of large you know sample of um, like a, a large ensemble of similar experiments for similar universes where all of the different possible quantum choices were made, uh, I think that is more or less going to be outside of the realm of co- uh, computation right. ever. And, and you did speak about, you touched on uh, consciousness there. I think that is such a big topic. And I'm, I'm looking at a pod, upcoming podcast on, on consciousness itself. But also, like you mentioned, James, I mean, I, I probably look at it, uh, if you're looking at time, you said you spoke about the universe being 14.3, billion? 13.8. 13.8, okay. And I'm trying to put that into a common man's perspective. Between time at that scale, I can't even uh, comprehend. So I'm thinking about this. If I'm sitting at home and I'm sitting at home from, let's say, 12 o'clock in the afternoon to 12 o'clock the next day, Mm-hmm. and the doorbell rings once that's how long we've been around ooh that probably yes <laughs> i think that would that would make sense right i, mean, I haven't done the that that calculation yeah, but, but you know you you could do the calculation you're absolutely right yeah. i mean that is that is totally humbling exactly what you're getting at right the yeah. fact that humanity has been around for such a small slice yeah, so so this. so why should we even why should we even think we're at a stage now that we are on the brink of uh, of let's say forget understanding consciousness or creating another human. So I don't know. I don't know. I just think that you know it's a flicker. Or uh, I think where we are at the moment, we need to enjoy what we are doing. We need to enjoy because this is the only reality, and we need to look after each other more than uh, you know. Like I said, it's just doorbell. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's one of the most one of the most important lessons for me as well. You know, it, it, there's so many things that that give you this sense of you know give you this sense of wonder and awe and humility and, and uh, when when you study physics because it allows you to see all of our human you know all of our human problems and our, our fightings and things like this in such a completely different scale, right? It's like we have been around for such a small amount of time compared to the the size of the, the, the you know the the age of the universe itself. It's like you know, it, it, depending upon your perspective, the universe doesn't even know that we're here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, why, why should we think that any the, the, the things that cause me so so much problems and the the source of us fighting amongst ourselves these should be you know, completely, uh, these should be so smaller than, you know, the, the, these should be so much less important than the fact that we have this tiny slice of existence and we really should take the full advantage of it to, you know, to try to construct a better world for everybody. It's just, it's just a shame when you see terrible things happening because, you know, people get so wrapped up in, in the sense that that's like their entire life, that's the most important thing when we really have this tiny slice that, that we should work together on, uh, you know, on. And you break that down to uh, the average individual uh, lifespan. Uh, yeah, that's the, you don't even hear the doorbell. Yeah, the the humbling experience of being a human alive, you know, to even ask these questions, right? It's just so absurd in a way, and so wonderful at the same time. You know, it's it just gives me you know, a complete a, a very humble perspective. I mean, uh, in fact, there's a talk that I like to give uh, that I've given a few times, maybe, you know, 
some of your some of your listeners might enjoy it. It's called What's Outside the Universe, mm-hmm. um, and there's a there's a good version of it online that's from uh, Amsterdam. Uh, pretty good production values on that video. <laughs> okay. But you know, it really kind of goes into this. You know, it kind of dives into what happened at the Big Bang and why, you know, the particular way that the, the universe expanded at the moment of the Big Bang. And, you know, as we know, it's actually had three different epochs of expansion through its history. For some reason, a few, like three billion years ago, for some reason, uh, the constant, sort of the kind of linear expansion that was going on started to accelerate, increase. So the, this is this notion of dark energy. It's been something that's driving the expansion of the universe right now that we don't really know what the source of it is, but it's sort of turned on a few billion years ago. Anyway, there's so many of these things that, that, you know, that lead us to the conclusion that, in fact, we might not be the only universe. And that's even more humbling, right? To think about the fact that not only are humans just this tiny, we have existed for this tiny, tiny fraction of time. Like you said, a, an individual doorbell ring for an entire day. We, we have existed for this tiny fraction of time compared to the entire history of the universe. And in fact, we might not be the only universe. There could be other universes out there. We have no reason to think that any of them would have, you know, would have uh, life like ours. Maybe they would due, due to statistics. Maybe there's inevitably going to be some other universe that's just like ours, except, you know, somebody listening to this wore a different color of shoes today, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, this, there's this sense of, like, awe and wonder and also humility, the fact that we, you know, we exist like this. And it really, you know, gets at the, the heart of, you know, what are humans really? What are we as, as not just as a species, you know, because we know who we are as a species. We're primates. We're related to, you know, uh, other primates and other, you know, uh, uh, other species so closely. But, and not just biological life because we know how that evolved, you know, more or less starting from, uh, you know, from very uh, tiny single-celled organisms and eventually after a very long amount of time you get to us. But mm. why do humans need to exist in a universe like ours? Why, why, why is it inevitable? Is it inevitable that humans like us, something like us would exist? Mm. And are there, you know, that has, uh, why is it necessary for uh, some kind of sense, uh, set of beings like us that have something that we can define as sentience and consciousness? Why do those things have to exist? Is it inevitable that we would exist? Mm. And of course, as you know, sometimes people, you know, some people thinkers throughout history have thought about this notion that maybe we humans are really the things that the universe grew to start to ask questions about itself. The anthropic principle? It's sort of, well, sort of like that, but, mm. you know, you can think about the, you know, the anthropic principle meaning that, that, you know, it's sort of, you know, just because we're here to ask this question, to ask these kinds of questions about exactly. science. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, somehow things had to be, had to have been arranged in a particular way for us to evolve and to ask these questions. Mm. And one way to answer that, of course, is that, Okay, maybe, you know, because it, it is, it goes back to something that we didn't get a chance to talk, touch upon, but we didn't get a chance to touch upon, but, you know, there's so many things in nature that we observe that we don't really have explanations for, like, why why they are what they are, and as physicists, that's very dissatisfying, right? Mm-hmm. If I see some kind of physical phenomena, I want to I have some kind of mechanism or some kind of description so that I understand why and how that exists, and for certain values of things that we measure in nature, there is no reason why they are, like, the electron charge? Why is that the number that it is? There's no reason. Uh, you know, why is the, the gravitational constant that value that it is? There's no a priori reason for that to be the way it is. The Higgs boson mass. Why is it the value that it is? It doesn't have to be that. Well, it is what it is. 
Yeah, pi, exactly. These things are, you know, these things are just numbers put there by nature, and we don't control them. We can only measure them. Uh, and if these, but if some of these numbers were very different, or even slightly different than what they are, we'd have a very different universe that we'd exist in. So one of the reasons, one of the ways that you could come up, you know, one of the ways that you could, you know, uh, you can try to explain this is that maybe these values are really just values that are taken from some kind of statistical distribution, right? Because as we know, you know, nature loves statistical distributions. And so maybe the value of, you know, our gravitational constant is just one of a, an almost infinite number or an infinite number of gravitational constants, mm. each one of which of those is actually realized in a different universe that also was popped into existence at the moment, uh, you know, right before the moment of the Big Bang when the, when the fabric of st space started to inflate. And because this inflation, in fact, should go on forever, and it popped up our little bubble of space, you know, uh, which then, it, you know, it was inflating exponentially, but then it slowed down. And so our, ours is, our universe is a kind of a little bubble that popped up when the fabric of space started to expand. But if that's true, then there could be an almost infinite number of other bubbles that popped into existence. So each one of these universes could, in principle, have totally different values of the same kinds of constants that we see here. But those values would be totally different, and most of the, those other universes would be completely empty voids and very boring, and you never won't, you know never be able to even host a podcast in them because there's no one around to listen to it. So that you know, then you get to that conclusion like, so our universe exists because everything was just the right, you know, we, for, because one universe had to exist, at least one universe had to exist where all the constants were just right to, to have allow these things to exist and for humans to evolve and for us to be able to ask these questions right now. Mm. In a way, it's just, you know, the, 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 the most profound thing to me is really this notion that I think it was in fact Wheeler, the physicist Wheeler, who had this wonderful diagram in one of his books that was it was uh, the the English letter U right for universe, mm. and at the at the left top left part of it uh, the 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 stroke of the letter is actually quite narrow, and then it gets wider as it goes down to the bottom, and it goes to the other part up to the top right, mm. and it's much wider, and then there's an eyeball at the edge, mm. and the eyeball is looking back at the an initial part of the U. Mm. So it's almost as though humans were the thing that the universe evolved to start to ask questions about itself, mm. and that's a, that's a very kind of profound uh, you know, thought to me. That, that image has, has more or less haunted me my whole life. Yeah, and and you said you spoke about this fine tuning. It's very interesting that it still is very interesting that yes, yeah, if if uh, the multiverse is true, then the fine tuning doesn't matter. It's irrelevant because, like you said, but uh, if we are talking just from where we are at the moment and what we can observe, and there have been uh, new new theories where people are talking about uh, RVA simulation, RVA computer simulation, and that got me thinking. If, it, if we ever were a simulation, I'm just trying to understand, for a person in a simulation, how far could that person search? Or how much could that person know about a computer program? So if, if you had a computer game, there were limitations to how much the person within that game could explore. It would be very difficult for that person to, first of all, then get, and, uh, get to, to, to have a view from the outside, or even the intent. So if that did happen, what are your thoughts on what's been going around about are we living in a simulated universe? There are a lot of very serious scientists today talking about it, saying, uh, yes, we could be. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating concept, but I also, I continually go back, I always go back to the, the notion that how can we 
design an experiment to verify this, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's the part, you know, as an experimentalist, I always have to go back to that, right? Because, you know, ideas are ideas are ideas, and I love ideas, but mm-hmm. until we can come up with some kind of experiment to, in principle, test this idea, mm-hmm. it just remains that, just a good idea. Or, or, so you, or you wait for a reboot to happen and see the buzz. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's entirely fascinating, and I love to think about these things too, right? I mean, if, you know, as you pointed out, if you were to imagine yourself existing in like a video game or like a simulation, you know, how would, you know, and this idea came to you, it's like, oh, I, I am a living in a simulation, possibly I'm living in a simulation. How could I ever, you know, come up with a way to get outside of that? How could I ever have a perspective that is, that, that, that expands beyond what my my existing parameters are, my physical parameters. Mm-hmm. In a sense, you can't, right? Even though you can conceptualize the idea, if you can't ever, you know, because the idea itself has been formed within this framework, there's literally no way for you to ex- escape that framework. You can imagine something beyond that framework, but the framework itself is still defines all of existence. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get beyond that. In a sense, that's related to this notion of, you know, are there multiple universes? Right now, I don't even know what it means to define uh, the concept of exchanging information with another universe, because all I have is this universe. The only, this is every word that, that, you know, all of my experiments, all of my thoughts, all of my ideas uh, are defined within this universe itself. How could I ever possibly come up with the concept of exchanging information with another universe? And in that sense, how could I ever possibly come up with a way to escape a simulation? Escaping the simulation, the concept of escaping the simulation is still defined within the simulation itself. Right. Then for you, for you with entropy, then you would agree with uh, more than a simulation. What about Boltzmann's brain? Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, I, I think there is that. that's a very interesting one because when Boltzmann spoke about entropy and when he was talking about the possibility of the whole universe aligning itself uh, with an end in mind, it was probably easier for a brain to exist in the universe with all the memories of being a human and uh, memories of life and rather than a whole human body going through evolution, create, I mean, you know, the creation of the earth, animals, and then we come up with the brain. Uh, yeah. I, I think a good analogy for that was the universe would, would probably give you a, the chances of if you wait long enough, you would get a stake from a universe rather than you having to go through everything else to, to the time we, we invented uh, a grill. So that is also another interesting fact, right? Because it, I, I don't know whether all of this ha- is, is being done with an end in mind. It could just be uh, a, a consequence. It could just be uh, an accident. I don't want to think about what it is, but uh, you, I think we've got to think of all. We absolutely do, and, uh, and I, I totally agree that the you know the concept of the Boltzmann brain is yeah th- th- this has to come up anytime you have the, a discussion of this right because you know when you apply this to you know ideas of the multiverse right it, I, I, again anytime you talk about this type of thing though is that to to do these calculations at you know to to even try to put a number on the probability of you know uh, human life existing in you know in a universe like our like ours or the probability of uh, maybe other you know uh, intelligences in the universe or uh, you know the probability of you know uh, other universes existing parallel to ours either from inflation or from like quantum mechanics many worlds hypotheses or things like this um, all of these 
probabilities are very ill-defined to me. Because to make that calculation, you have to make a lot of assumptions behind the scenes too. So even you know Boltzmann, the concept that you know the you know it's it, it somehow you know like it's often described as sort of like you know it's more probable for a single brain you know to to like you know spontaneously come into existence in a void, right? Mm. Um, than it is for like for for our universe uh, to have come around the way that it did. Mm. Why is that? Why wh- you know the, the thing that I stick at is the, the, the first words. More, it's more probable. Why is it more probable? That, that to put any behind the scenes, you have to make a bunch of assumptions about probability that go into that that I don't think are so valid in this case. We have one universe for us to to look at, and it doesn't necessarily mean you know for, for me it's not so it's not such a a, a fertile uh, direction for experimental research to make you know, to make kind of hypotheses or to talk about you know concepts like this mm. because the, you know the you know again at the end of the day you know, we 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 as humans do exist and we kind of know how we have evolved in the future there's you know there's probably you know as we know now given the fact that the the we know a lot now about the expansion of the universe and in the future of the universe and what the universe will probably do will continue to expand forever and ever and ever at some point you can imagine that since that's there's an, basically an infinite amount of time in front of us. There will probably probably be you know more universe or more uh, beings like us that will come into existence, or maybe even more advanced beings than us at some point. So you know why why would we think that we're so special, or why would we think that we're not so special? Again, I, I don't really trust the the calculations with respect to probability that go into this. I'm not so much of a Bayesian. Let's put it that way. Okay, okay, and even uh, when it comes down to uh, one particular fact that I just want to come back to where uh, we talk about, we were talking earlier about the probability and the wave and uh, the duality function. Uh, that in itself seems to be uh, a, a sticky point, right? Because if we cannot uh, break this down or if we cannot get to a fact that where we are talking about probability and every electron or every possibility at the quantum level is... is uh, has to be observed. You're putting the human agency into the universe because if I don't observe it, it doesn't happen. So that to me is a little bit striking because I get everything else. I understand the fact of uh, there being a difference between the quantum world and the Newtonian world. But why does human agency and my observation of a particular system have to have an impact on it? I mean, I if I've... So what happened... Before the doorbell, what happened when humans were not around? Was there nothing around? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a very good answer to that. You know, I mean, it's, it's an open question, right? Mm. The, you know, it's, it, it's uh, this notion of the observer paradox, or the, you know, the, in quantum mechanics, it's very clear, right? I mean, there's certain things that can exist in a multiple uh, different concrete states in some kind of superposition of them, right? It's like, it's not as though it's existing in multiple distinct states. It's that superposition is a different concept, right? So we have, mm. you know, you, you have possible outcomes and they are mixed together in this superposition of possible outcomes until you make an observation which then collapses into one of them, right? And the way that that collapse happens, of course, you know, is the, is the source of a lot of, you know, kind of handering in about, you know, the, the, the consistency of quantum mechanics and all that kind of a thing. And whether it's a valid description or is it just something that, you know, our human brains did not evolve to really understand at an intuitive level. And in that sense, you know, the, 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 the concept of superposition is, is fairly straightforward. It's, you know, anybody that tells you the quantum mechanics is not understandable. It's like, you know, I mean, it is understandable. It, 
It's just that it's not so intuitive to us. It's not, you know, our intuition is based upon experiment, experience, right? And experience is, for us humans is totally just, uh, you know, the, 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 you know the, the small amount of time that we've existed and we've evolved in this very, very fuzzy, very, you know, friendly set of conditions, uh, you know, to, 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 to exist in the universe. And so coming down to that, you know, it's like, I don't necessarily know if, there had, if, if, if choice comes into it at all, because for me, you do have a wave function. You do have, you know, superposition of possibilities. And then once you make an observation, it does collapse. It's not the, 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 the particular wave function has, you know, the possible superposition of states does choose one of them, and it chooses the one that you've observed. But could there have been other possibilities? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And you spoke earlier about consciousness as well, so I want to ask you a question. What about the possibility of conscious like you said we have four forces in nature there could be another force yes there could definitely be uh, i think vibration could be another one but if you think about consciousness what is the possibility of somewhere in the future us figuring out that like the higgs field consciousness is a field as well that permeates right through the whole universe and uh, it just like the, the higgs uh, particle picks up uh, matter or accumulates matter consciousness could be that matter then maybe interacts at some level to give you different levels of consciousness? I intimated this earlier, but for me, the concept of consciousness is so ill-defined, mm. even amongst, you know, even amongst profess professionals, that I have a hard time digging into it in, in a lot of the directions that some people want to go when they want to connect it to, you know, physics, mm. right? Because physics does very particular things, right? It's a, it's a very particular field that is trying to come up with mechanisms, trying to come up with mathematical, you know, uh, descriptions and then you know mechanisms by which certain physical phenomena occur right mm. consciousness as it seems is clearly something that is happening at the at the you know at the biological level mm. now, obviously it has a physical component to it right because what is to, you know if you ask because what I would you know what I'm getting at is I want to define consciousness first I want to mm. understand what we mean by that before then I can ever assent or think about this concept of like a consciousness field because at first glance that makes no sense mm. there's no way to come up with the notion of a consciousness field in the same sense of physics sense as any other fields that we that we know of that i could define that i could give you know some kind of uh, uh, uh you know operators to i could you know describe with a hamiltonian or a lagrangian or something like that i i don't know what it means to, to do that until we define what we mean by consciousness mm. so if i were to define what consciousness is right now to me, clearly, it is a set of neurological impulses in the brain. It's the way that these things come together. Is it very, very complex? Yes. But it doesn't mean that th things that are, just because something is horribly complex, doesn't mean that it's still not explicable with existing physical phenomena. Mm. So this concept of consciousness is something that I think, to me, it, it's, it's difficult for me to dive into it because it's not so well defined from like a physicist perspective. I totally understand that you know the physicist perspective is sometimes a little bit hardcore and extreme compared yeah. to what no, other scientists want. But it's again for me, it's it's just so difficult to dive in because I don't really you know I don't really fully understand what people are 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 getting at when they when they are trying to understand this you know yeah. in a deep deeper and, way. And I was just referring to panpsychism there, but I agree hundred uh, yeah. percent with you. I'm totally a believer that the uh, that consciousness does emit in the brain. And for me, uh, one very clear example is the use of psychedelics. If mm. psychedelics have an impact on your behavior or have an impact on your thought processes, then I think it's very clear that the 
the psychedelics do affect some part of your brain and we we are studying that now and we are being able to localize what particular uh, chemical affects which part of the brain so i think uh, that is pretty clear you know once you know that you can yeah. touch certain parts of the brain and have certain results or have certain reactions then yeah, i think exactly. there's no more there's no more need for uh, something outside that right Right, and you're right, and, and of course, all of that being said, right? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm being the hardcore physicist skeptic, just because that, that's you, the way. You, you that's should the be. Way physicists, <laughs> that's the way be. physicists you are. Right? We're, we're, we're horribly skeptical. I mean, you know, we could do an entire uh, episode about uh, the uses of uh, you know artificial intelligence and particle physics and physics itself, right? It's like, for example, mm-hmm. in physics, in my field, you know, in, in experimental particle physics, we don't use a lot of AI methods. Primarily, you know, because, well, for one reason, we don't really need them so much because our data is very highly structured. It's, very, it's a very large, you know, data set. It's arguably the largest unique data set in human history, but it's very structured. And so the hottest and latest in deep learning is not so applicable to what we do. We do use it because we're interested. You know, a lot of us are just kind of, we're still sort of, you know, coding nerds also. So we really mm-hmm. want to, uh, but really, we also don't like a lot of artificial intelligence ideas because they're black boxes, right? And there's no mechanism by which I can you know, if I were to dump all of my data into a like some kind of perfect deep learning algorithm mm-hmm. and it spat out a bunch of discoveries, new particles that I had missed, then I would want to know, I wouldn't trust those because I would want to know how they got to that. How, how did it go from, from the raw data into the discovery that it did? And very, very often with deep learning algorithms, there's not, so, you know, they're, they're designed to take advantage of these correlations and find things that were not so visible before. Mm-hmm. So it's more or less of a black box in that sense. It's also when we start talking about things that have not so well-defined physical attributes, the physicist, you know, the kind of highly skeptical physicist comes, you know, uh, uh, switches on. And I start, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to understand a bit more about what is the words that we're we're trying to use. But, you know, to me, it's also, there's there's also a, a kind of a, you know, there, there is a, there is a very interesting part of it as well that, to me, does come back to physics is that I don't know if I I don't know if I could ever you know describe in a physical sense some kind of consciousness field, mm-hmm. but I also there's no reason for us to think that there would not be other types of sentient beings that would have a different type of, for lack of a better word, intelligence than mm-hmm. ours. Mm-hmm. Our level, if you want to have some, you know, it, we. we it seems it seems a good heuristic or a good conclusion to come uh, to come to the conclusion that at least on Earth, in terms of biological life, beings that exist, there are definitely different levels of what are, again intelligence or or consciousness or sentience that mm. that that we can identify right and. Mm. and and for you know, for us as humans, right? If if we take, if I take the you know Newton's Principia, uh, you know, and I give a perfect copy of it, you know, to a bonobo, mm. the bonobo is not suddenly going to know, understand, you know, Newton's theories, right? Mm. Because the bonobo interacts with the world in a different way than what we do. Mm. And so, why would we assume that we are the 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 highest possible version of intelligence that a, a, a universe like ours could evolve. It's entirely possible that there are, you know, other types of intelligences that are way higher to us, and maybe they're giving us the answers all the time, and we don't have the, we don't have the, 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 the you know, 
the the intelligence capacity, like in a like in a literal sense, to understand it, or to, or 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 you know, or or to even yeah, really to understand it. The concept of understanding to us is defined within again a very set, certain set of parameters. There's no reason to think that we should be the highest possible thing, and it's entirely you know, it's totally hubristic to think that we would be. Why would the universe only evolve us? Why would be Why would be we be so special? I don't think we're so special. Mm, and you've brought in an important, uh, a very interesting fact because then it comes down to scientific truth or. Uh, the ultimate truth, because we would never know till we do not know what happens in the end, because like Nietzsche says, if it doesn't kill you, it only makes you stronger. So I think uh, we, we, we would never know that answer. I mean, we do know it in the short term, but in the long term, that is still an open question. Yeah, very much so. And it's an open and fascinating question, too. Because, again, I, you know, even though I'm the, the, being the hardcore, you know, skeptical physicist, which I always be, will be, I also have the part of me, which is the one that constantly wonders about those things and has a very kind of almost poetic, you know, uh, wonder about this. You know, it's like us being the only possible, you know, uh, planet in, in, in the universe that has beings like us that interact with the world like us. Okay, maybe, maybe you know, again, I, I don't want to put the, the word probable on it, but it's entirely possible there are others. It's just that they're in separate, separate, separated by either space or you know di- time distance that we haven't had a chance to interact with them yet. You know, from a from a purely physical perspective, as far as we know, for, you know, as you know, the size of the universe is an interesting idea right now. We know that the overall size of the universe is very, very large, and in fact, it's much larger than our observable universe, right? And our observable universe is. You know, is is a volume of space defined by all of the stuff that could ever possibly send us a light signal that could get to us that we could verify it exists. Mm-hmm. But that can't be the entire universe. There has to be more stuff outside of the observable universe than what we will ever. And and if it's outside of our observable universe, by definition, we'll never be able to observe it. We'll never be able to verify that it, that anything there exists or inter- exchange information with it. Maybe just you know. So you start thinking, okay, where do I place the where do I place the scale? Where do I place the parameters or the, the volume of range by which I am able to say it's probable, quote-unquote, that at least one uh, set of humans like us evolved in this, in, you know, within this, this volume to then get to this point to start asking questions about the universe as, you know, as curious, curious beings. Mm. And do I put it around our observable universe? Do I think there's more inside of our observable universe? Or is there, do I say that there's a minimum of one in each observable universe after 13.8 billion years on average? And so in these other observable universes, maybe there's at least one there as well. Maybe, you know, there's zero in one of them, there's two in another one. Uh, Again, I have no idea how to put these, put these probabilities together. I'm not really one of these people that puts so much, uh, uh, you know, puts so much uh, credibility in these things like the Drake equation and things like that because there's so many assumptions that go into that that are sort of just like picked out of thin air. You mm-hmm. have to make choices about them and they're still totally human choices. Yeah, and you, you were also mentioning about you uh, how far we can go with as far as space technology is concerned or when we talk about uh, consciousness with AI or human beings. And and uh, t- I, have, I have my doubts, and not my doubts, but I would just wonder... Uh, if if can you tag an electron? I don't think you can, right? All the electrons uh, all over. No, so, you cannot tag an electron. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you can't really do that, then how how would machine learning work? When we say an electron, right? I mean, what an electron is is an individual. You know, go, kind of goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier. One of the things that connects all of us as humans, and that you know, if we think about it in a in a, in a metaphorical way, it should really make us feel like we're part of the same continuum rather Absolutely. than individual beings that are kind of fighting against each other or right. kind of, 
you know, fighting over resources or something. In fact, if you look at us closely enough, we are, you know, these tiny, tiny particles, but these particles are really just temporary vibrations in some kind of quantum field, you know, because the more accurate description of the entirety of the universe is not individual chunks of stuff like electrons or protons floating through a space, but instead the fundamental objects of the universe are in fact these quantum fields. And so, you know, the, the Higgs field is just one example of a field, but in terms of quantum particles, quantum fields are the things that are the fundamental objects, and then an electron is a temporary vibration in this quantum field, mm-hmm. and it vibrates into existence, and sometimes it's stable for a very long time, but then maybe it gets absorbed by something else, da 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 So... As humans, that's really what we are. We are gloriously temporary vibrations in quantum fields in a particular stable configuration, and then eventually we, we will, you know, be subsumed back into the continuum just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we, this connects all of us in a very, very fundamental way. Um, but, you know, and so, that, but it, so an individual electron, you know, as a chunk of something, yeah, you can't tag it, you know, in the sense that I can't, like, put a tag on it before a collision. So, for example, if I take an electron-positron, they collide and make a Z boson, and then the Z boson lives for, like, 10 to the minus 15 seconds. Oh, no, sorry, 10 to the minus 23 seconds, something like that. Hmm. And then it decays into another electron and a positron. That electron that comes out the other side is not, quote-unquote, the same as the one that went in. Okay. There's no way for me to tag an electron in that sense. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is that because again, the, you know, the, the thing, the thing that keep in, or the thing to remember for me is that physics at its smallest possible scales doesn't so much care about the names of things, mm-hmm. and that both that's both a physical statement and also you know a metaphorical statement, right? The universe doesn't care that you know really that, that I exist with the name James in this com- in, in this combination of you know uh, vibrations and quantum fields, right? But it also me- it, it means a very physical statement. So because you know the rules of quantum mechanics are very different from the ones of ours. You know as you know. Uh, particle collisions are not like car collisions, right? They have totally different rules. In a car collision, we care about, you know, the names of the people. It's like, oh, no, is John okay? Is Mary okay? These things, you know. Mm. And we care about where the tire is, you know, the where, you know, that kind of a thing. Is that Maybe the tire fell off of the car. But for particle collisions, they don't care about that at all. The thing that particles care about, that, that, you know, that the universe really cares about is conserved quantities, the conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, conservation of charge and spin. As long as these things that we observe are conserved quantities, as long as those are conserved before, during, and after some kind of event, you can do whatever you want to inside there. So, for example, this is how a Higgs boson is, in fact, created. If we, When two particles collide, two protons, two of the quarks maybe get pulled out of this, uh, of this, uh, these protons, those two quarks hit each other and they annihilate and they cease to exist. And then, but their properties are reconstituted into some new thing called the Higgs boson. And all the same properties of the quarks are still there. They've just been re- rearranged into a different form. Then the Higgs boson lives for you know 10 to the minus 22 seconds, and then it splits into say a muon and an anti-muon that hit our detector. Mm. The muons are totally different particles than the quarks that went in, but because all the properties are still there, all the charge and the spin and the you know the different types of isospin and the you know the the, the energy and momenta, those are all still conserved. It's totally possible for that to happen because the universe likes to reconstitute things. So in that case, an electron is just a little vibrating quantum packet of, you know, a, a vibrating, uh, a vibration in a quantum field that has certain uh, properties, physical properties that are conserved. Mm. So 
that, so all that being said, the rules of quantum mechanics, the rules of quantum field theory, how these you know, electron proton or uh, sorry, electron positron come together and annihilate and maybe create a boson something, all those rules, they are deterministic. I mean, quantum field theory is a deterministic uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, theory, right? It's a deterministic framework. Therefore, you should be able to teach a computer how to do that, and we can. So that's mm-hmm. how, you know, at the particle level, in fact, we, we collide these protons at high energies and then, you know, something happens and a bunch of particles fly out and then they hit our detector, you know. And that detector, the raw data, is just a bunch of blips. It's a ones and zeros as to, you know, you have a geometry that's defined by this three-dimensional object and then you have a bunch of different possible places that could be lit up by a particle passing through them and then it's either, you know, lit up or not lit up. And so in a sense, you can think of it as, you know, a bunch of ones and zeros. And so once you have all that data, you can then, re, you know, we, we then run algorithms on it to reconstruct this raw data into objects that, that, you know, human physicists can analyze. So if I see a bunch of blips coming out from the center of the collision and they all go in one kind of nice curvy direction to make a, an individual track, and then there's a blob of energy that hits this thing called a calorimeter right behind it, and it's a nice. Then I can I can reasonably conclude that that is an electron, right? So sorry, it's an object. You know, it's like a particle, like an electron that hits our detector that we can see. Mm-hmm. So again, the, all of these the rules of the, of the quantum mechanics down at the moment where the collision happens and then things start to fly out. That's deterministic. In fact, we can take the raw data and we can do we can. We, we can actually code up the same rules of quantum field theory in our simulation and then create simulated data, and we can compare those two things. Right. In fact, that's a large amount of what we do. We do, we do simulations of what we would expect uh, you know, if a new particle existed, like a quantum black hole or, or an exotic cousin of the Higgs boson or a dark matter particle, a dark photon, and then we compare that to our real data to see wh- whether, you know, whether there's evidence of a new particle or not evidence of a new particle. And so, in essence, we can simulate nature. We can simulate nature at its smallest possible scales because quantum mechanics, quantum field theory is a deterministic theory. Mm. So, there's also, of course, you know, the limitations to our, uh, to our calculations because within the physics itself, within the model, there's lots and lots of subtleties and there's lots and lots of degrees of precision to which you can go that are almost you know, infinite in nature, right? So we, we, we have a certain amount of accuracy and precision we can do now with our current computing uh, resources. In the future with, you know, with quantum computers, maybe this will get better and better and better mm-hmm. so our, because our computing capacity will get better and better and better. So our ability to predict what happens in, from a quantum field theoretical pr- perspective will get better and better. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, you scale that up, and at some point you could, in principle, uh, you could, in principle, you know, um, uh, simulate an entire human brain and then maybe simulate an entire species. Wow. But I think the limitation there for you would not only be the, yes, the limitation is going to be like we started, is going to be the energy. And so to actually get the extra energy needed or to find out you said there were you were talking about different levels of particles and the energy that was needed, so you'd have to build a bigger uh, uh, collider. Yes, very true. We will. I mean, there's, there's there's this limitation. You know, in particle physics, there's in my in my field. You know, we call it high energy particle physics. There's two, and just in general, collider physics, right, where we're smashing things together to try to see if nature w- uh, can create something new some new particle that we, you know, that it does not exist in abundance around us right now, maybe only in existence at back at the moment of the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, mm-hmm. but we can recreate it here in the laboratory. The whole name of the game is that there's two ways that you can miss new discoveries, or put another way, there's two ways that you can make new discoveries.
ways. One is in terms of energy, right? So this is this notion of going to bigger machines, bigger bigger uh, tunnels, you know, to you know to allow the particles to get to higher and higher energies, and through E equals mc squared, maybe if nature has this particle with a high mass m, it's entirely mm. possible. But we'll never know about it unless we build a bigger collider to get to higher and higher E's. Mm. And this goes uh, you know, higher and higher and higher. The other way that you can miss a discovery is at our existing machine, for example, the Large Hadron Collider. You might, add, you might wonder, it's like, okay, we've been running this thing for like, what, 10 years? And we have a lot of data, so you know, it, it's at this fixed sort of high energy. We've been running this high energy for quite a long time now. Uh, we haven't. We, we so, so far, we haven't seen any big discoveries beyond the Higgs boson. So why don't we just turn it off? We already looked, quote unquote, at this high energy. It's because what we're looking for is extremely rare, too, right? I mean, if we do 40 million collisions per second, and we do this for an entire year, we'll probably make only a few thousand Higgs bosons that we can actually collect their their decay products. Mm. That's very, very rare. And so the, the other things that we're looking for are things like dark matter or dark forces, right? These have to be very rare because every single one of you listening to this, every single one of you has about a billion particles of dark matter flowing through your body every second. And you've never felt it. It's never interacting with you. It's, it means that your, your body does not interact with dark matter very much, if at all. So that means that the, the, the force by which dark matter interacts with our bodies is something that's very, very weak and very, very rare. Thus, if we might want to have hope of discovering this new thing in our data, we would have to run the collider, not just for a year, not just for 10 years, but maybe 20 years. And that's only, that's possibly only where the new, you know, the, the little rare thing could start showing up in our data. Maybe it was only, maybe, you know, again, we don't decide, we don't choose this, we only measure it. Nature, maybe it only wants to make one of these dark force carriers, like, once every five years. And so, if, you know, if we run or, you know, that's fairly Baroque, but, you know, once in a very, very rare number of them, and only after 20 years could we start seeing a, a, a high enough number of these in right, right around the same place to let us conclude that we've seen something new. So in that sense, what we have is we have, you know, in terms of we call it luminosity. We need to run the thing for a very long time, build up a huge amount of data to start hopefully seeing evidence of this new particle. But again, the other, but the other part is still totally always there. We will only have one maximum energy at this Large Hadron Collider ever. Mm. Okay, there's some there's some ideas that maybe if you use the same the same tunnel and you put very very much much stronger magnets, then you could you, you could allow these much stronger magnets to allow you know particles to get to higher accelerations inside the same ring. I have another But idea. Can, what, please? Another tunnel on top of that tunnel. Ah, well. <laughs> so instead of uh, instead of going width, you go higher. Ah, yes. That, in fact, is more trouble than it's worth, and it doesn't allow you to, yeah, okay. because if you had to, if you had a, you know, you might imagine, like, stacking a bunch of rings on yeah, top of Yeah, this, I was thinking right? of that. Yeah, so, but but what that means is that you, uh, when you do that, each one of those, so you, they, they don't add up like that, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> so you need to, you have this, you have this kind of, you want to have in this perfect circle all the time, and you can't just add another one on top of each other, unfortunately, or it would be great if we could, hmm. um, because it becomes, it becomes, it doesn't really give you what you want to. At the end of the day, you really have to have, you know, because the particles are going very, very fast, right? Uh, you you need to get them up to, you know, uh, uh, you need to allow them some, yeah, you need to basically get to a bigger ring. There's mm -hmm. really no, no way around that at the moment. Mm -hmm. So that's why the plan now is to build, uh, is to build the, uh, you know, something called the Future Circular Collider, which is the proposed thing that will be about 100 kilometers around. Wow. Because that's always going to be there. Unless we can get to bigger machines and bigger energy, uh, you know, higher energy uh, particle collisions, 
if nature has particles with ma- high mass M, we'll just never be able to discover them and measure the properties. Mm. That's really the only way it is. And, and like the Higgs, is, are we targeting something now or are, is something expected to show up or are we looking and then we say that depends on the uh, amount of particles that we find or is it something specific that we're looking for? No, at this point, we're at a really interesting uh, juncture in the history of humankind. Uh, And I'm not trying to be dramatic. It's just totally true. Because the 20th century was such a fast set of developments in physics, as you know, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. back in the late 1800s, right? Once the, you know, uh, uh, electromagnetism and Maxwell's equations, then suddenly 1905 with relativity, 1915 special relativity, 1930s development of quantum mechanics, Mm -hmm. later put these things together and get quantum field theory and the standard model. This is so, you know, like a very rapid set of like, almost like clockwork discoveries. And the... The reason why the 20th century was so unique and rarefied and very kind of privileged is that it was, if you look back on it, it was almost as though everything was progressing in more or less these kind of guaranteed discoveries, right? right if you right. go back go back at the early parts of the 20th century, it's like, there, you know, it's like, oh, if the equations are correct, there has to be an antiparticle for every particle. And everything, was, everything was just happening. It was a continuous yeah. sequence yeah, exactly. of, of discoveries. Yeah, and again, that was fanta- I'm sure that was fantastic for people that were around at the time. But that leads to the point that, you know, and, and as you know, every time you make a new discovery, it typically raises a bunch more questions than it answers. And that's good. That's really, you know, science, it will continue to progress, like, you know, uh, you know ad infinitum. You know, again, science is not a list of facts. After, and then we found the last fact, then science is done. Science is a process. Science is a way of thinking about the, uh, the world. It's a way of asking and answering questions. And so this will always go on. And so over the 20th century, there were all these kind of more or less dis- guaranteed discoveries to be made. You know, and the last one in particle physics was this Higgs boson. That was the last guaranteed discovery. However, now that that one's been discovered, there are no more guarantees. There's just a bunch of big open questions and no gigantic sort of huge theoretical flashlights or like, you know, hints in a way, right? It's like, you know, if you're in the dark and then the theorist says, oh, look, my flashlight says right over there, there should be a discovery, right? We don't have those anymore. We just have big open questions because all of the big ideas that we, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the concrete suggestions of things that we have are basically just ideas that could exist. There's no guarantee for them to be there. For example, there could be, we don't really know why, for example, the, the neutrinos, these tiny, mm. tiny particles that, you know, have almost zero mass, but not zero. We mm. don't know why, we don't know why they have the masses that they do. Right. One of the ways that they, one of the ways that we could explain that would be an extension to the standard model particle physics, which would put in some of these things called sterile neutrinos or heavy neutrinos. And these would be kind of partners to these other neutrinos. And maybe we could find those. Uh, so that would be uh, are neutrinos also uh, one of the reasons with, uh, for, for the sun, the continuous burning of the sun and energy from the sun? Ah, yeah. So neutrinos, in fact, are always coming out of the sun all okay. the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, neutrinos uh, are a product anytime you have some kind of nuclear decay. Okay. There, you'll get some kind of neutrino out of it. And so as you know, the, the, uh, the, the or nuclear process, right? So the, the sun, as you know, is a gigantic nuclear furnace, mm-hmm. as we know from the They Might Be Giants song, right? Uh, but it's constantly producing this light and heat, and it's also constantly producing from these nuclear interactions going inside. Okay. It's also constantly producing neutrinos. And, you know, if you thought it was bad that I said that you have about a billion particles of dark matter flowing mm. through your body every second. You're setting yeah. some more well, down, maybe. 
there's <laughs> well there's in fact way more neutrinos these are just standard model particles there's way more neutrinos going through your body if you hold up your thumb to the sun there are about i think it's what 10 trillion neutrinos coming from the sun just going through your thumb wow. every second. So this, there's a lot of these particles all the time. <laughs> and again, but, and they're super weird. We, you know, we can have an entire, an entire episode about neutrinos themselves. They're mm-hmm. very strange because why are they so light? They're not zero mass, so they're not like photons going at light speed, but they're almost there, but they have a non-zero mass. We don't know why this is. And, and it, we don't have a, like the big guaranteed discovery. It's possible that there's other very heavy neutrinos that because they're so heavy, there's this mechanism inside the complicated math that makes it so that the heavy one, you know, it's often referred to as a seesaw mechanism. You're so you go to the playground, you know, one uh, 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 a kid that uh, has more mass is sitting on one side and the kid that's light, you know, goes up to the very, to- you know, uh, the top of the seesaw, right? So there could be an extra uh, heavy particle neutrinos that exist out there, but there's no reason for them to be there. There's no, there's no reason why they have to be there. Uh, they don't interact with the Higgs field, is it, for that uh, to happen? Uh, that's an open question. We don't actually know how neutrinos get their masses. It's possible that they get it through the Higgs field, but possibly not, too, because mm-hmm. the Higgs field is not the only way that individual particles get masses. Oh. For example, the, the W and the Z bosons, those are particles that have masses. They have quite high masses, but they get their masses deliberately through something called the Higgs mechanism. I don't know how much detail we want to go into that, but okay. there's this thing called there's this thing called the Higgs mechanism that is more it's a it's a complicated process within uh, within quantum field theory itself that leads it, it's this thing called spontaneous symmetry breaking mm-hmm. that allows the particular way that this symmetry is broken in a particular way it leads to these W and Z bosons having masses and so we know that there are ways to get masses that are not strictly through interactions with the Higgs field so yeah there's this thing called the Higgs mechanism which is you know, which is in fact the it, it does lead to the Higgs field itself having this particular value, which means that the other particles interact with this field and they get their masses that way. But for certain part of some of the particles, like these W and Z bosons, those get the masses directly from this other thing called the Higgs mechanism itself. And it's and maybe it's too complicated to go into right now. I'm happy to come back at some point and talk more about the Higgs mm-hmm. um, because the math behind it is really fascinating. But again, so in neutrinos, it's, it's suspected that maybe they get their masses that way, but also not. And so that's an open question. We don't really know what the source of neutrino masses is. It doesn't, you know, for example, in the standard model, they don't have to have masses. So they don't necessarily have to get their masses from the Higgs field. Mm. So we don't really know where they're getting these masses from. And, and so it could be some other, other thing. I'm, um, I'm sorry. No, we were talking about uh, neutrinos. I forget yeah. what we were talking about. Neutrinos. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask you. So, so when you say about when you're talking about uh, what's coming up next, maybe for physics or for theoretical physics or what you do, yeah. I think a couple of things could be, or the big ones are going to be dark matter and dark energy. And do you see those two as driving a lot of experiments in the future or observations? Yeah, they, they have to drive experiments in the future because they're two of the big uh, unsolved questions at the moment. Um, and, you know, and it relates to the the other thing we were talking about, right, where, you know, you asked, are there any big, you know, are we looking for one specific thing with these bigger, you know, the, the next generation of collider experiment? And the answer is no. And also, the, but the more profound answer is we don't need to. In fact, we should not be looking for one particular thing. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes from the fact that as an experimentalist, we are looking for anomalies. We are looking for deviations 
from what we expect in the absence of a discovery or, you know, deviations from our background noise, if that makes sense, right? So really, you know, my job as a particle physicist, as a, as a collider experimentalist, is my job is not to discover new particles. So in the sense that if the Higgs boson discovery was great and we're, we're very happy to have made it, it almost did a disservice because it makes people think, you know, non-specialists makes them think that our job is to, like, churn out discoveries by clockwork. Mm-hmm. That's not what we are. My job is, in fact, to rule out all the possible places in our data or in our, you know, phase space, in, our, in the physical world itself, rule out places where a discovery could be hiding. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, what we are is more like map makers. We're like cartographers, right? We have this new uncharted territory. If you go to a higher energy machine and you, go, you build a huge amount of data, you have this gigantic data set, you have this uncharted territory and you just have to map it out. So you have to look in this part. Did you see a discovery there? No. How about this part here? No. And so then you get a chance to rule it out. And so if you miss any of those parts, that means you're being a bad physicist. And if you don't look where you possibly could, it also means that you're being a bad, curious human. So the reason why we have to go to bigger machines is that we have big open questions uh, you know, of physics right now, and there's no guaranteed answers as to where the answer would be. But if we don't look at higher, higher energies, if we don't look at higher masses, we'll never know what's there. Mm-hmm. And also, that's, that's the answer right there. Yeah, and also I think you said that we were looking for the Higgs and we found it. But now that, you know, it is open-ended, the possibility of finding a particle could actually be a bigger game changer because if you know what's there and you already are planning and predicting for it till you find it, it's pretty much in line with what your research tells you. But the next particle could actually change reality for us. Correct. Yeah. Anything, any discoveries we make now beyond the standard model, because the standard model is complete, right? Mm. The Higgs boson was the last piece to be plugged into the, the puzzle mm. of, the, of the standard model. But we know that the standard model is incomplete. It's not the full description of nature. So, for example, it doesn't contain gravity. We know that gravity exists, and we know that gravity has nothing to do with the standard model. So, also dark matter, as you, you pointed out, dark matter. There's no notion of dark matter in the standard model. So, we look for extensions to the standard model, and these are things beyond the standard model. And so any discovery we make beyond the standard model will be a total and complete game changer. So that's why it's so important for us as experimentalists to really do our jobs, which is to, you know, of course we're always interested in the theoretical ideas, but in the theoretical models, but we can't be tied to one particular theoretical model. Our our job is not to, you know, the the, the purpose of particle experimental particle physics is not to determine whether theorists are guessing correctly. <laughs> it's mm. our, our job is to do experiments to push as far as we can in terms of parameters and energy uh, and in, uh, in data collection to, and then rule out all the possible places where an anomaly could be found. Once we find the anomaly, then it will be up to the entire community to determine what it is, to interpret it, to put it into our existing framework and hopefully help explain some of these big open questions. But that's not really why we do what we do. We do these experiments. We go to higher energies simply because if we don't look at higher energies, we'll never know what's there. Right. And James, to all my young listeners and uh university students who have been listening and I'm sure you've kept them engrossed I'm engrossed what would you what would you have as advice for them so if you had to talk about some of them who want to get into this field what is your advice going to be oh yeah so this field you know honestly this field 
most people don't choose this field. This cho- field chooses you. <laughs> well. So particle physics is the place, you know, again, particle physics chooses you as a person. Um, it's the place you find yourself if you're just simply not satisfied with the other explanations for reality around you, right? You know, again, this is absolutely nothing against the other sciences. I love the other sciences. Mm-hmm. If, I had a, if I had a seventh lifetime, I would study biology full-time or I would study information theory or I would study, you know, flatworms or I would study... I, seriously, I love all these things. I wish I had an infinite number of Jameses right. uh, to study all of these things. Maybe, it, maybe they are doing that in other universities. Entirely possible, yes. <laughs> But, you know, particle physics is the place you find yourself where you simply can't help yourself. You've got to know more about this. You want to know what the most fundamental possible rules of the universe really are. And in that sense, it's sort of like it chooses you out of all the other possible things that you could, you could work on. And so in that sense, intellectually, that's what happens, right? It's sort of like intellectually and emotionally, it's like, you know, you're drawn to this just because it's like, wow, look at this. The fact that we as humans can really come up with mathematical models and, and experiments that test those mathematical models at such precise levels, that is absolutely mind-blowing and astounding and gobsmacking. And that's why, you know, that's why so many of us, you know, uh, thousands of us come to this place because nothing else was satisfying to, our, to us. We had to go to the very extreme limits of human knowledge. And if you're that sort of person, you'll know it and, and you'll definitely get into particle physics. In a practical sense, the way you do it is you, you know, you, you recognize how important math is. You recognize that mathematics is the language of the universe. It really is. So, for example, if we were able to ever come into contact with another, you know, set of beings somewhere in the universe and they had an intelligence that was similar to ours, we're not going to talk to them with English. We're not going to talk to them with Farsi. We're not going to talk to them with, you know, anything. We're going to we're going to, you know, somehow talk to them via math. We're going to realize that we have independently discovered the mathematical rules by which the universe operates. Maybe we have different symbols or different ways of putting them down, but we'll realize that those equivalents are there, and that's how we're going to be able to communicate with them. So math, as you know, is absolutely important. Uh, you know, because we do live in a mathematical universe. That's something, that, that'd be fun to have an entire uh, episode about, is to talk about the mathematical universe. Why is it that our universe seems to choose a few different mathematical objects to actualize very, very precisely, but mathematicians can conceptualize a large number of possible mathematical objects that our universe seems to have no use for? Why is that? Anyway, so in the practical sense, yeah, math is obviously important, and you know, making sure that you have really good, you know, uh, uh, resources available, uh, you know, you know, textbooks and like classes and things like that. But at the end of the day, also what the particle physicist is, is again, it goes back to the thing we talked about at the very beginning. Particle physicist is the person who never accepts that's just the way it is as an answer. They never accept, oh, the, you know, there's no answer for the thing that I'm looking for, the, the question I'm asking right now. You know, I can't find the answer in the things that are around me right now, so I guess I'll just give up. That's the opposite of the way the particle physicist thinks. The particle physicist looks at a barrier to understanding something and they say, they, they say not, uh, they, they don't say, well, I guess I'll give up. They say, how could I possibly answer this question? And if the tools don't exist around you to answer the question, you go and find them. And if they don't exist anywhere, you create them. So that's really the way the particle physicist operates in the world. They recognize that the physical world has rules, it has, has these kind of structures around it, and it doesn't matter that whether we think that they're elegant or they're, 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 they're beautiful 
or they're convenient or they're simple. Simplicity is not a scientific concept. If you have some kind of, you know, if you have a problem, if you have some kind of observation in front of you that doesn't make any sense given our current understanding of nature, you go in search of the answer. And sometimes that requires you to invent totally new methods and think completely outside of every box that's ever existed. In fact, inventing an entirely new, entirely new box, that's what a particle physicist is. And if you're that sort of person, you'll know it. And if you want to become that sort of person, then you know, uh, start thinking that way. Start thinking outside of all the parameters that are given you. you know, for example, if your teacher says, okay, no, you have 20 homework questions and you have to answer the, the exact precise answers uh, from this book right now. But the book is maybe it doesn't do a very good description of the problem or, you know, uh, 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 you know, or the, the book is vague in certain places. Don't just say, well, I couldn't answer it because the book was bad. Find another book. Look at the concept itself. Think about what is being said in the, in the question itself. And if you do that, that will allow you to start to think the way that a physicist does. Start to think in the way that a particle physicist thinks about the, 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 you, you know, the nature of nature and the universe itself, the way everything works. And that's the way that a particle physicist is, uh, is evolved, is born, is constructed. That's so inspiring, James. That's really inspiring. I think we can use a lot of what you've said at work as well because the principles that you've just highlighted have really been, uh, can be exercised in other fields as well. Uh, James, do you have any favorite books that you would like to uh, recommend or you want Oof. do you, do you have any, what's your favorite book when research gets very very busy I don't get a, a chance to read a lot but mm -hmm. uh, that, you know it starts to go down but then of course I, I'm one of these people that's always been reading multiple books my entire life right yeah. so right now for example I don't know right now I'm reading uh, the novel G by John Berger from the 1960s he won the Booker Prize for that mm -hmm. uh, I'm also reading a book called Kids These Days which is about uh about millennial, the millennial generation, and about how uh, economics uh, and social, economic and social trends have created a situation where you know the contemporary millennial generation has more or less been uh, deprived of opportunities that existed in the past. Uh, I'm looking forward to a couple of other books right now. I recently read a fantastic book by uh, a journalist named Angela Saini. And it's called Superior. I highly recommend that to everyone. Uh, in fact, that, that's, a, that's my biggest recommendation right now. It's called Superior by Angela Saini. And uh, she talks about the, the very troubling uh, uh, rise of uh, non-scientific, pseudoscientific, quote-unquote, race science and about how so many people around the world are trying to use discredited scientific, you know, discredited ideas, pseudoscientific ideas to justify bigotry and hatred. That's a fantastic book. Um, in terms of science books, of course, I would not be where I am right now. I would not be a particle physicist if it weren't for the book The Elegant Universe by oh. Brian Greene. Oh, yeah, that's and, my favorite. And I, assume, I, I hope everybody has read that oh, yeah. times. And If you've never read it, you should absolutely read it. You know, Big it's, fan of yeah. Brian Greene. Yeah, yeah, no, Brian's great. Um, yeah, so that you know, in terms of fundamental books for me, that's you know, in terms of science ones, that's that's one of the the most uh, most formative ones for me. And in but uh, you know, I, I read a lot of poetry, I read a lot of biography, I read a lot of everything. Um, <laughs> and and the other, of course, the other thing that I would highly recommend is that everybody wait for about one year from now uh, when my book will be out, maybe maybe two books. So uh, look look forward to that. <laughs> If we want to get uh, to know a little bit more about you, would you want to tell us about either your website or where could they connect with you online? Uh, please tell us about your book as well. 
Yeah, so I'm easily searchable online. So like I mentioned, I'm a full-time researcher here, and that's, you know, that's my day job and that's my passion. But I'm also interested in – I'm also very passionate about making sure that people recognize that my research is actually your research. You know, as, you, as I hope that people have understood through this – as I hope people have understood through this conversation, you know, when you get these really complex concepts – you break them down into their pieces, you find a little kernel, you realize that it's really just coming from a very simple, almost childlike curiosity place, right? All, this, all the research that we do here is really just trying to answer some very basic questions that everyone has asked themselves at some point. Really, it's like, where did we come from? How does everything work around us? And where are we going? Those are the questions. It's just we, you know, the answers are, get very complex, and the ways that we do it gets a little bit, you know, labyrinthine. But it, those are really that's really where the research, you know, comes from, and, and the the sort of sort of fire in the belly and the in the heart, you know, this desire to know more about the universe. And so, uh, you know, my kind of hobby is uh, sort of taken on a life of its own over the last few years um, as I've become more and more well-known as a public-facing uh, scientist, but I do a lot of public speaking around the world. Um, and so, I, I've, in fact, once I spoke, you know, the closest I've gotten to, uh, 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 you know, to, well, I, I spoke in Mumbai, for example, once, and I, sp- I speak all over the world, though, in a lot of uh, venues. Um, I do not have a YouTube channel. People t- keep telling me that I should start a YouTube channel. But again, if I had a seventh version of myself, I definitely would have started a YouTube channel already. <laughs> um, but you can find me. I'm easily searchable online. You can also go to jbbeecham.com. And uh, that has a list of uh, all of my public appearances and uh, some of my other projects that I'm working on and my research and things like that. Um, I don't use social media very much except for Twitter, uh, so feel free to follow me on Twitter. That would be fantastic. Um, and mostly because then once I get closer to when the, my book is coming out, um, that would be, that would be uh, uh, an easy way to find out more about it. In terms of the book that I'm interested, you know, the, the one that I'm putting together right now, um, there's several different books that I want to write. The first one that I think I'm going to focus on is the fact that, you know, underlying so much of what we have been talking about here, this kind of like, this, in fact, goes back to the original quote that uh, you were talking about, right, from a politician is saying, you know, if you can explain what you're doing in terms of the politician would understand, then you can have money for your for your project. My book is, you know, is interested in exploring the concept that, the entire basis of that discussion is, in fact, kind of bad, right? Why should we, why should basic science, why should scientific ideas that are just because, you know, just about understanding nature itself, understanding the, the basic rules of the universe because we're curious, why should those be subject to the funding whims of politicians? So it would be a book about how, you know, the current system, so many of the current socioeconomic systems that we have right now, they, in fact, stifle science. They, they impede scientific progress when you have... An entire society that's based primarily upon profit, you know, people making profit for things, uh, that changes everybody's mindset so that the only scientific projects that are pursued are primarily the ones that will eventually create profit for individuals. So even even it happens in my field, right? I mean, most of the research that we do here, you know, you're never going to make a product out of the Higgs boson. Mm. But because this type of research historically has been attached to, you know, things like energy sources or, you know, military or defense, nothing that we do here can ever have a military purpose, you know, by design. It will never be possible to make, you know, what we do into a bomb. But also, it's not really going to give us energy sources. It's really just because we're curious about nature. But when you have a society where the, the basic, you know, the, the highest goal is possibly to create profit for people, it makes it so that only certain types of projects are pursued. 
and that that does a disservice to everybody, and, and you know, and, and not just in kind of intellectual senses because our ability to explore the universe is stifled, uh, but also in practical sense because, for example, pharmaceuticals, right? I mean, only certain types of drugs are pursued to be developed in pharmaceutical uh, trials those ones that will create profit for the companies themselves. But there's so many other things that if we were able to just give lots and lots of resources to curious scientists that want to either solve problems that are intellectual or practical, we would have much, much better uh, you know, society. For example, why do we have an antibiotic shortage right now? Mm. This should be, this should be, that's insane for uh, uh, an advanced society in the year 2020 to have an antibiotic shortage. True, but true. instead... We have pharmaceutical companies that are extremely interested in, you know, creating designer drugs for, for people to have a lot of money to pay for, like lifestyle drugs, right? This, this is completely backwards. Anyway, so the, the book will be about that, about how, you know, can we really dare ourselves to think big and not just think big in terms of the next particle physics experiment or, you know, the, uh, something new with respect to CRISPR or like, you know, new deep learning techniques to do da-da-da, you know, but really thinking big in the sense that what if we were able to achieve a global society where we did not have just the profit motive behind the scenes, constricting funding toward big science, constricting funding, uh, you know, and resources to scientists, you know, who really just want to push the boundaries of human knowledge. And in fact, that would help everything. It would help science. It would help technology because, you know, the smartphone, for example, that you have in your pocket, maybe it seems like it was a, you know, a great uh, invention, but it's really just a small computer. This has been, this is not such a you know, quantum leap forward, if you want to use the language we were using <laughs> earlier. Right? Yeah. It's really just an incremental change. It's a marketing change. The things that we think of and valorize as big steps forward are not really big at all. And I want to create the, you know, I want us to allow ourselves in the 21st century to have a knowledge revolution, to really think bigger beyond what we have now and maybe start positing that we can organize things so that we don't have just the profit motive behind the scenes uh, toward the, that goes that, that supports all of the science and the technology and the innovation that we do. Mm-hmm. So that will, you know, that of course relates to, it affects particle physics, big experiments like the future circular collider. Because, you know, why should we stop at a future circular collider? Why is 100 kilometers enough? The answer is it's not. We should go bigger. We should build something, you know, around the circumference of the moon or, mm-hmm. you know, around the outer edge of the solar system or something like that, right? Yeah. And, why should we stop just at you know uh, at particular types of sequencing a genome you know just so we can understand about a particular you know disease or something like why why should we not go bigger than that what would what would genomic genomicists do if they had more or less unlimited resources mm. what if we were able to set up things so that we didn't put so much money and so many of our resources toward knowingly wasteful uh, you know programs like, for example, a trillion-dollar fighter jet in the United States that's never been used, that, mm. that, that, that will never be used. Mm. These are resources that are being chosen to be used in a particular way by people that, don't, that, you know, that only really have their own, their own interests at heart. So, you know, it's more like a – it's basically – it's going to be a, 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 a 21st century manifesto for a revolution in knowledge and a revolution in science and technology and innovation for everybody so that we can create a better world for everybody around us. Um, yeah. So that's the first book that I'm kind of working that's, on. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That echoes a lot of what we uh, are trying to do here in our own small way at Indian Genes as well. So yes, this is, we are looking forward to the scientific revolution, the, the spread of knowledge to everybody, uh, especially people who are listening to us at, and, and kids around here. So I think that's a, that's a great meeting of minds here. Yes.
I, 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 I think what you're doing is fantastic, and I totally support it. It's one of the reasons why I was very happy to get your invitation. And uh, before we end, uh, James, I once again want to thank you for all the time that you've spent talking to us. It's been so engaging. We've enjoyed talking to you. I've spent the last, I don't know, I've not looked at the watch. In fact, after the first one hour, I've switched <laughs> off the watch and I just closed my eyes and I was listening to you and talking. So I just want <laughs> to get into the, into the conversation. So I just hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, James, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Anytime you just call us and we, uh, we can talk again. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was, you know, thank you so much for having me. And, and uh, you know, I... I I, I think that what you're doing is a fantastic thing, and I think that you know I can tell that we have very similar you know philosophical attitudes toward uh, you know toward knowledge and physics and you know inquiry itself. So yeah, I'd be more than happy to come back if anyone's interested at some point in the future. Thank you so much, James. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me.